You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. title of the sermon this evening and this weekend is A New Dawn Breaks. Now, you'll have to forgive me. I was, um, I always do my own sermon slides. I, I, I'm funny about it. I like to do my own sermon slides. And I, I was just thinking about the titles. Like, man, that sounds like the title of a Star Wars movie, A New Dawn Breaks. You know, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, A New Dawn Breaks. I was like, we're going to go in a Star Wars, Star Wars direction with this slide. This, the sermon has nothing to do with Star Wars, but um, just indulge me and ignore it if you hate Star Wars. All right? But that's the title of the sermon. I want us to look at our text, which is going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 through 13. At the very beginning of Luke's story. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as priest before God during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Well, to, to this weekend, tomorrow, tomorrow is the first day of the Christian season of Advent. Now, maybe that's new language for you. I grew up in a tradition, a, a church tradition where we didn't pay any attention to Advent or Lent or any, any of that. For us, the two religious holidays were Christmas Day and Easter Sunday, and that's it. So those were our holidays. And maybe for some of you, that's kind of your experience. Maybe you even grew up in an irreligious home, so you didn't have or observe any holidays in a religious way. So maybe, you, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I've heard of Advent, I've heard of Lent and all of these things. I'm not really sure what it's all about. I'm not sure what the value in all of that is. Well, it's the Christian calendar, my friends. It's this Christ-formed calendar given to us by uh, the same people who give you the Bible. The same people who collected and canonized the New Testament established the rhythm of the Christian calendar. For me, I've learned to really appreciate the Christian calendar. It's a creative way of subverting secularism by marking time according to the Jesus story. 
You know, the Jews have been doing this for centuries and centuries, millennia. You know, they have, a, they have a story, they have a heritage, they've got a journey that they've been on as a people, and throughout the calendar, they tell that story by observing uh, their different festivals and feasts and, and holy days and holy seasons. And as Christians, we have our own story centered on the person of Jesus. And so the Christian calendar is a way of observing sacred time, marking time according to the Jesus story in a way that helps us to relive and enter into the story. And the first day of the church year begins on the first day of Advent. So happy new year, all of you. It's New Year's Eve. If you're a Christian, for those of you that are being formed by the gospel story of Jesus, it's a brand new year that begins tomorrow. So we're entering into the season of Advent. Advent is a season of four weeks, and um, I'll talk a little bit more about it in just a moment. But the Jesus story, as we're beginning to tell, retell, relive the Jesus story, it begins not with, with his birth, but it begins with anticipating and waiting and longing for God to come, for God to intervene. There's this ache in our heart. Something's not right. Something's amiss. And so we're looking back. We're also looking forward. We're, we're in between the first and second Advent. Uh, I'll say more about that. But that's four weeks of Advent that lead into the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas is not a single day. There are 12 days of Christmas. And then the 12 days of Christmas lead into a lesser known season called Epiphany. Maybe you know a little bit less about that one, but Epiphany is all about the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. So that ought to be a big deal to a lot of us here, the worship of the Magi and all of that. And then you have the 40 days of Lent, excluding the six Sundays, the 40 days of Lent as we journey with Jesus to the cross, entering into Holy Week punctuated by Good Friday. And then we have Easter Sunday. But again, Easter is not just one day. There's an entire season of six weeks called Easter Tide. And then finally, it culminates with the day of Pentecost. All of that is right in front of us. Uh, we're, about, we're entering right now into this long stretch of holy days, holy seasons, the Christian calendar. So today we begin our journey from Advent to Pentecost. And I read just a moment ago this story in, in the Gospel of Luke. There are four writers in the New Testament that give us an account of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And they each begin their story a little bit differently. And Luke begins his story of Jesus by telling us about a birth, but it's not the birth of Jesus, the Savior. It's the birth of John, the baptizer. And Luke tells us right from the very beginning, it takes place during the reign of Herod the Great. Who was Herod the Great? Herod the Great, first of all, was king over that region at this time. He was the king. He was more like a vassal king in service to the Roman Empire. But at this time, at the time of the events Luke is writing about, Herod's been reigning about 30 years. He's about 70 years old, so he's getting towards the end of his life. And historically, we know that Herod the Great was notorious for being especially cruel, vicious, ruthless, violent. He was a megalomaniac. He was intensely paranoid, and his paranoia got worse and worse as he got older. Um, he was also a brilliant architect and a brilliant military strategist. In fact, that's actually how Herod the Great came into power. He had led several successful campaigns on behalf of Rome, 
And as a reward, uh, Rome, the Roman Senate conferred upon him the title of, watch this, King of the Jews. Which was kind of ironic because, number one, Herod wasn't even a full-blooded Jew. He was half Jew, half Gentile. And secondly, he had no religious devotion whatsoever to the God of Israel. For him, religion was a tool, a mechanism to control people and galvanize power. That's, that was really his God, was power. So Herod is the king of the Jews, but he's not, he's not the king that God's people had been waiting and longing for for centuries. But during the reign of Herod the Great, Luke introduces us to a righteous, humble couple, a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And there's two things that he tells us about Zechariah and Elizabeth right off the bat. First of all, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both very old. And Luke doesn't mince words. He doesn't, he doesn't say upper middle age, as Wade talked about last week. You know somebody's really old when everybody agrees, okay, they're old. Everybody understands that. There's no sense in uh, candy coating it. They're old. But secondly, they were childless, and that was a big deal in, in ancient Middle Eastern culture. It was a mark of shame to not have children. They wanted children. Like everybody else, they longed for children. They had prayed and hoped for a child, but no child came. And you see, that's really, that's really what Advent's about. It's about this ache in our soul that something's not what ought to be. This isn't how things should be. You're longing, you're waiting for God to do whatever it is God's going to do. And you have a vision of what that should look like. You have your own expectation. You feel like you have an idea of this is what God should do. This is when God should do it. This is how God should do it. And Advent, these four weeks are really about laying that aside and saying, God, you're going to do whatever you're going to do whenever you're going to do it. But I hope you'll do it sooner. That's really what Advent's about. And what I want you to know is that Zechariah and Elizabeth they really serve as a representative for God's people at this time, for all of what we would call Israel, for 600 years. The people of God have been aching and longing and waiting for God to intervene in their story. The prophets had foretold God's going to raise up a Messiah figure, a son of David, who's going to usher in an eternal reign of peace and righteousness. And he's going to sit on the throne and reign not just over Israel, but all of the nations. And he's going to save and deliver his people. And they have been told this, but they've been waiting for 600 years. On top of that, not only have they been waiting for 600 years, but in the meantime, they've been ruled over and oppressed by foreign empires. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And yeah, they've got a king, but he's an imposter king. He's not even one of them. They're longing for this God-raised king that the prophets had promised. For 600 years, you realize how long 600 years is? 600 years is longer than the distance between us and Columbus. Six centuries of waiting, longing, anticipating, hoping. And by this time in Israel's history, the prevailing mood of the age was, how long? How long, oh Lord? They waited, they waited, they waited, they waited until they felt like they couldn't wait anymore. How long? And some of you, that represents where you are in your life right now. Maybe there's a need in your life and your whole cry, whether it's a financial or a health, some type of family issue. How long? 
And I think all of us sense collectively that same ache in our heart as it relates to our society or the world itself. We sung about it, how the world is, is broken and God's coming, new creation is coming, but, but as it's coming, it hasn't come in complete fulfillment yet. So there's this ache that remains. How long? That's what Advent's about. All that's being worked over, it's being worked into us over the next four weeks. Well, this was the ache in the hearts of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They had prayed, they were righteous, they were longing. Well, another thing that Luke tells us about Zechariah in particular is that he was a priest. God's people had probably hundreds of priests at this time. They were all spread out over the land. And these priests were divided into divisions, priestly divisions. There were probably a couple dozen or so priestly divisions. And Zechariah, the priest, would have belonged to one of these divisions. And each one of these divisions, they would, they would uh, rotate. And one by one, the different divisions would go to Jerusalem and they would stay there in the temple priestly quarters and they would serve in the temple for a few weeks at a time. You know, performing all of the temple liturgies of prayer and worship and sacrifice. They would remain there for a few days, a few weeks, and then that division would leave and then the next division, it would be their turn to come and serve. So in the events that Luke's writing about, it just so happens that Zechariah's division is the one that is now called upon to serve at the temple in Jerusalem which means Zechariah has to pack up his belongings and for the next few weeks he's going to leave his humble abode there in the hill country of Judea. He's going to leave behind his wife Elizabeth and he takes the short journey over to the big city, the holy city, the capital city of Jerusalem. And he's going to stay there in the priestly quarters and for the next few weeks Zechariah along with all of the other priests in his division, they are going to go about the work and the duty of carrying out the temporal liturgy of worship, prayer, and sacrifice. It just so happens that on this one particular day, Zechariah is chosen by lot to be the one priest out of the entire division of priests to go into the sanctuary and offer incense on the holy altar. This is a high privilege. This might be something that might happen once in a priest's life. It's a very rare privilege and honor. And so Zechariah goes into the sanctuary and he's there, he's at the altar, he's offering incense and he's offering all of the, the liturgy, the prayers. He's doing everything that needs to be done in the process of offering the incense. And right in the middle of the process, an angel appears to him on the right side of the altar, big angel. And Zechariah is terrified. And the angel says what angels always seem to say in the Bible, don't be afraid, Zechariah. He says, your prayer has been answered and your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son. You will name him John. And this child, he's not going to be an ordinary child. He's, he's actually going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from within his own mother's womb. And he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You, you've been waiting. Your people have been waiting for Elijah. Well, now he's going to come in the person of your son. And he's going to turn the hearts of the people, the parents to their, their kids. And he's going to turn the hearts of Israel back to God. And your son is going to prepare the way for God to come among his people. That's what the angel says. And Zechariah responds saying, how can I know for sure this is going to happen? I mean, you're telling us we're going to have a, a son, but we're as old as dirt. 
how is this really, how can I be sure this is going to happen? And this is where the story kind of takes a comedic turn. And the angel says, what do I look like, the janitor? I'm an angel. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. I'm telling you this is going to happen. And so the angel says, you know what? You're going to zip your lips for a little while. I'm going to hit the mute button on you. And you're not going to be able to speak for a little while until all of this goes down. Then you'll know I'm not a janitor. I'm, I'm an angel, and I come from the Lord. Well, while all of this is happening, just outside, you got to imagine, there's multitudes of people who are waiting. They've been praying, and they've been worshiping, and they're, they've been waiting for Zechariah to come out. And they're starting to get restless. They're thinking, man, this guy's taking a long time. What's going on in there? Did something happen to him? Do you have a heart attack? Eventually, finally, Zechariah comes out, but he's not able to speak. And just by looking at him, the crowd can tell something's happened to this man. He's seen a vision or an angel or something. This, something's different about him. And so Zechariah, because he can't speak, he's got to use charades. And he's got to somehow find a way to communicate this to them. Imagine you're playing charades with somebody and, and, and you know, your task is to communicate. I have just seen an angel who has told me my wife will conceive a child and, and so on and so forth. But somehow or another, Zechariah figures it out. And he goes home and he still can't speak. But Elizabeth gets pregnant. And once again, in the story of Israel an old Jewish couple conceive a child together. See, if you had never heard this story before, but you were familiar with the story of the Jewish people, once you read this story, your immediate response is, oh, I see what's going on. We've got another Abraham and Sarah here. And this child that's gonna be born, he's following in the footsteps of Isaac and Jacob and Samson and Samuel, all of whom were destined for greatness and all of whom were born of a barren woman. This is an ongoing pattern. So nine months later, the child is born. And on the eighth day, it's the day of circumcision. This is a big deal. You would invite your family, you would invite your community, your friends. It would be a big celebration. It's the day of circumcision, but it's also the day you formally announce the child's name. You formally name the child. And so everybody's gathered there and they want to know, what's his name going to be? Tell us the name. And Zechariah still can't speak. So Elizabeth says his name is John. And everybody kind of recoils. They say, wait a second, that's, that's not a family. Nobody in your family's named John. And here you are, you finally got a child in your old age. You're, you're probably not going to have another child. You ought to name the, the boy after his father. And it's interesting. It says that they, they make signs, they make charades to Zechariah. But the problem is not that Zechariah is deaf. He's mute, but apparently they're just confused or whatever. And Zechariah grabs a writing tablet and he writes down, his name is John. And the moment he writes it, his tongue is loosed and he begins to speak. But he doesn't just speak. He begins to prophesy. Now, we're going to look at that in just a moment. Imagine this man who hasn't been able to speak for nine months. Imagine what that would do to you. You haven't been able to speak for nine months. By the time you do speak, you have already pretty well thought through what you might say. But what Zechariah says is not just simply of himself. It's a spirit-inspired prophecy. We're going to look at it in just a moment. But first, I want to ask the question. I want you to think about this. Why does Luke begin his account of Jesus this way? 
because it's very different from the other three. Mark, he begins his gospel account this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That makes sense. Matthew begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. John, who's writing much later than the other three, he immediately gets to Jesus. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. All three of them immediately get to Jesus, but Luke takes a long time before he ever actually writes the name Jesus. He's, he's ultimately wanting to tell a story centered around the person of Jesus Christ, but Luke takes a while before he actually gets to Jesus. Why? It's because Luke is writing primarily for a Gentile audience. And Luke wants, to, wants Gentiles to know, and most of us here are Gentiles, Luke wants us to know that Jesus didn't just pop up out of nowhere. But the story of Jesus is a continuation of a story that goes back centuries and centuries and began with Abraham and Sarah. That's why in this story there's a deliberate echo between Abraham and Sarah and Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke wants you to make that connection. He wants you to understand and remember God has made promises to Israel and Jesus is God keeping his promise to Israel. But watch this, equally important, Jesus is also Israel keeping covenant with God. When you read through the story of the Old Testament, you'll see that over and over again, Israel fails to live up to their covenant with God. But finally, we have a true son of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, who takes upon his own back the identity and mission of Israel. That's why in Matthew, you see the sequence where uh, Jesus is born and Joseph and Mary go to Egypt. And they come out of Egypt, just like centuries before Israel came out of Egypt. That's why the very next thing that happens in the sequence is Jesus is baptized. He goes through the waters of baptism, and then he spends 40 days in the wilderness of temptation, just like ancient Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea and spent 40 years in the desert. And whereas Israel failed, Jesus is going to be successful. And that's why the very next thing that happens is Jesus goes to the top of a high mountain, and he gives the Sermon on the Mount, just like Moses went to the top of Sinai and gave the law. Jesus is saying, I am taking that identity, that mission upon my own self. And whereas Israel failed, I'm going to bring it through to completion. And in Jesus, he is completing the covenant with God. He is fulfilling Israel's covenant with God. Amen. So listen, with the birth of Jesus, God is not starting over. And this is very important. There's a lot of teaching out there in the evangelical world. I, I can remember being exposed to it very early, which taught something like, okay, God started with plan A. He was going to use Israel, and, and, uh, and, and he's going to work with Israel and all of this. But, man, Israel's failed. So I guess I'm just going to scrap all of that and start over, and, and now I'm going to start scratch with Jesus. That's not, that's not what's happening. Luke who's writing this, he's been traveling around with the Apostle Paul, he wants you to know it's actually the exact opposite. With the birth of Jesus, God is not starting over. He's keeping his original promise. He's keeping the promise that, uh, that he will bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham. 
In Jesus, God is keeping his promise that a son of David will reign over the nations, not just Israel, but he'll reign over all of the Gentile nations. In Jesus Christ, God is keeping ancient promises made in the Hebrew scriptures. In other words, Luke is telling us the story of how Israel's Messiah has become king of the world. And that is the gospel, my friends. The gospel, listen closely, the gospel is not a formula. A, admit you're a sinner. B, B believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. C, confess him as Lord. Congratulations, here's your ticket to heaven. That is not the gospel. And that's not how we respond to the gospel. The gospel is not a formula. The gospel is a story of how Israel's Messiah has become king of the world. And the appropriate response to the gospel, as Paul emphasizes over and over again in the book of Romans, is one of humble submission and allegiance unto and covenantal loyalty and obedience of the faith. That's the term he uses, unto our new heavenly king. That's the gospel. That's our response to come under his reign and begin to participate and embody in his vision for the world set about in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout his life and example. Amen. I gave you, that's, man, I could preach like my whole life on that. And I do. But we got to move forward. Now let's look at this prophecy that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, gave on the day that John was circumcised and named. Remember, Zechariah has not spoken for nine months. And he finally gets this tablet and he writes, his name is John. He obeys the word of the angel. And the moment he does that, his tongue is loosed from muteness and it begins to prophesy. Let's begin to look at what Zechariah says in verse 68. Blessed, that's the first word, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. Remember that word redeemed them. Say redeemed. He's redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his child, David. Remember, we just talked about David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors. And he has remembered the holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. Let's pause right there. It's not the end of the prophecy, but I want to pause for a moment. Zechariah is basically saying what I just said. He's saying all these promises now are coming true. At long last, it's happening. And God's going to deliver his will. It's all right there. He talks about Abraham. He talks about David. He talks about the prophets. He talks about the covenant. And Zechariah is saying that somehow or another, through the birth of my son, a way is being prepared for God to now be faithful to his promises. But how is God going to do all of this? That's something that Zechariah couldn't possibly imagine. Nor his son John, nor any Jew at that time could really imagine how that was going to happen. I kind of hate to do this because it almost ruins the story. But if you fast forward to the very end of Luke, Luke 24, we have this really compelling story where two disciples are walking down a road from Jerusalem 
to their nearby hometown of Emmaus, about seven or eight or nine miles. And it's the first day of the week after Jesus' crucifixion. And um, only one of them is named. We, we know his name is Cleopas. He's probably Jesus' uncle. The other person is not named, but a lot of people guess that it's, it's possibly his wife. But nevertheless, they're walking down this road. It's Sunday. It's, Jesus was just crucified on Friday. And they're walking back home, and they're just crushed. They're in emotional despair. They're, they're, a, they're a mess. And all of a sudden, Jesus, who was just raised from the dead that morning, he appears to them, but they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, why are you so sad? And they said, have you been living under a rock? Aren't you aware of the things that have been happening in Jerusalem these last few days? And Jesus says, what things? And they say, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty prophet indeed. And so now they begin to talk about Jesus to Jesus. And they say, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Now pause there. Like go, go back to Zechariah's prophecy. Remember what he prophesied, that somehow or another, through what this child's going to do, a way's going to be made for God to come and redeem his people. And here at the very end of Luke's writing, you have these two disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, we had hoped that Jesus was the one who would redeem his people, but it has not come to pass. And it's here where Jesus responds, and in the original Greek, it says something like, oh, ye knuckleheads. And he takes them back, and he walks them through their scriptures, and he shows them throughout the Old Testament that actually Messiah had to suffer, and he had to die, and he had to be raised in order for all this to come to pass. So, with that in mind, I want to pick up the conclusion of his prophecy here in verse 76. And now he begins to turn his attention to this little baby that's been born in his old age, who he has named John, who we will come to know as John the Baptizer. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's, it's a beautiful prophecy over his son. And as so often is the case with prophecy, the prophecy says way more than the prophet could ever really understand. But Zechariah's son will prepare the way for a dawning of a new day. In other words, it's the end of the Old Testament night. Think about the world before Jesus as the nighttime. You ever been out in the middle of the desert or somewhere where there's not a bunch of city lights around and you're just there in the pitch blackness of the night? And you have the moon and the stars. And you know, if you're out there, in the, if, you're, if you're in enough seclusion, enough darkness, the moon and the stars can give you enough light to kind of see around you. And if you know what you're doing, even navigate. Well, in the world before Jesus, it was a dark pagan night. But God gives to Israel these luminaries in the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, the moon and the stars. 
And by the light of the moon of the, and the stars, by the light of the law and the prophets, Israel is able to kind of grope their way and find a way forward. But now, Zechariah is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the dark night is almost over, and very soon the day is going to dawn. Remember Malachi, the last book of the Hebrew Bible, where he prophesies that the sun, S-U-N, son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And with John, the dawning of God keeping his promises begins to pick up over the horizon. And that's what we celebrate in the birth of Jesus. And as those rays begin to illuminate and to warm the earth, we begin to be healed in those rays that come from the Son of God's covenantal faithfulness in God giving us his only begotten Son. Now, lastly, I want to give you one more thing. I want you to take note in, in these Holy Spirit-inspired prophecies, Zechariah speaks of salvation in three ways. First of all, he speaks of the forgiveness of sins. What is salvation? Is it the forgiveness of sins? Well, yeah, that's part of what it is. It's not all of it. But what is forgiveness of sins? And how are our sins forgiven? Watch this. Follow me for just a moment. Our sins were laid upon Jesus on the cross. We sinned our sins into him. He quite literally bore our sins on the cross. On the cross, we hurled upon him our violence, our greed, our lust for power. Jesus nailed upon the cross is a picture of our sin. We sinned our sins into him. He bore our sins quite literally. But rather than responding the way humanity always responds by recycling it and retaliation, Jesus simply absorbs the blow. And he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he dies and he takes our sin with him down into Sheol, down into the grave. And on the third day, he is raised to life. And he comes back with a word, not of vengeance, but a word of forgiveness. So salvation is the forgiveness of sins. But number two, salvation is also the defeat of death. In the prophecy, Zechariah, he speaks of light shining upon those who sit in the land of the shadow of death. So he's saying light is beginning to shine and death is beginning to be defeated. That's what salvation is. It's the defeat of death. Jesus rose again on the third day. Death is defeated. And the promise of the New Testament is that there's coming a day, a final day, when Jesus returns when all of those who are in union with Christ, what happened to Jesus on the third day is going to happen to every single one of us. We will literally physically be raised from the dead. And, and the emphasis of the New Testament is if we really know that, if we really believe that, it should completely change the way we look at life, the way we live. That's maybe a good Easter series next year. I don't know. Might have to work on that. So what is salvation? It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the defeat of death. And finally, it's the way of peace. Zechariah prophesies that as the Lord comes into the world and acts within history, he will guide our feet into the way of peace. The word that Zechariah would have used is the word shalom. And Pastor Wade mentioned that last weekend. The word shalom, the Hebrew concept of shalom, everything being exactly the way God would have to be. Wholeness, 
true heavenly peace, not the absence of conflict, but everything being according to God's vision for human life under his reign. Yes, as an individual, but also together as, as a community, living together according to God's vision. And I'll tell you, that's a journey. It's an ongoing journey throughout the rest of our lives. That's why the New Testament, if you'll notice and pay attention, the New Testament speaks of salvation past, present, and future. We tend to exclude our salvation framework to the past. Long time ago, I got baptized, I confessed Jesus as Lord, and that's when I got saved with a D on the end. I got saved. Well, there is a sense where the New Testament talks about being saved. Yes, there's something that happened to you perhaps in the past. Repent and be baptized. And there's a moment there where everything began to change. So salvation belongs to the past. But there's also a time in the future. Salvation belongs to the future. The New Testament speaks of being saved in the future. We will be saved. So salvation is past, it's future, but also present. We are being saved right here and right now. Even now, Ryan Post, I'm in the process of being saved from greed, from self-centeredness, from pride, from envy. There's a lot of junk that Ryan Post needs to be saved from. And that didn't happen the day I was baptized. That's happening to me. And it'll last until the end of my life when ultimately I will be saved. But salvation is not a status, it's a journey. It's a life that you live. And if you stay with King Jesus, he will guide your feet in the way of peace. Amen? So stand with me this morning, or this evening, sorry. And uh, we're going to come to the communion table. Let's, let's believe together that during the season of Advent, God is going to birth something new among us. Our communion servers are coming right now, and in just a moment, each one of you, we want to invite all of you, every single one of you, we want to invite you to come. You're going to come down this middle aisle and... I want you to come with prayer and meditation in your heart. And you're going to come forward and just take a piece of the pre-cut bread that you're going to be offered. Dip just the end of it in the cup. The bread is his body broken for you. His, the cup is his blood shed for you. Dip that bread in the cup and then you'll partake and then you'll circle back to your seat. But let's come to the communion table that we might join our lives with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pray to prepare our hearts for coming to the table of the Lord. And then since this weekend, since tomorrow is the first day of the church calendar that tells the story of Jesus, I want us to do something we don't often do. I want us to confess together the creed that summarizes the Jesus story, the Apostles' Creed. It'll be up on the screen in just a moment. So let me pray and let's prepare our hearts and then we'll make our confession and then we will come to the table together. Father God, we thank you that after the long waiting, you acted within history and you sent your son, the covenant, the son of covenant faithfulness rising over a dark, dark world. And as those rays of righteousness, those rays of covenant faithfulness shine upon us, we are illumined and we are warmed and, and we are healed. Thank you. We come to this table now that we might have fellowship with the body and blood of Christ. We come asking that you forgive us of our sins. 
We know that we have not lived perfectly as we should have. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We've not loved you with our whole heart. And we ask you to have mercy on us and forgive us. And we come to this table, we confess that the bread that we break is the fellowship of the body of Christ. And the cup which we bless is the fellowship of the blood of Christ. And we come confessing our faith in the Jesus story. Amen. Join with me now, if you would, please, and let's confess together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.